0: turn to 1st Samuel with me. 1st Samuel. We're actually getting close. I've only got about, uh, I think three more after this and we'll be done. And then we're going to be, we're going to be getting into 2nd Corinthians. Um, Dustin and I will be sharing the teaching responsibilities on that. So if you would, you could be reading ahead in that. And, um, but the next, uh, I don't know what, what they're doing the next two weeks while I'm gone, but then I'll be picking up with the last couple of messages um, after that, and then we'll start 2 Corinthians. But go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26. In last week's passage, if you remember, we saw David come dangerously close to sin when he set out to avenge himself by killing Nabal and his family, simply because Nabal had disrespected David. And we saw this very wise and gracious woman, Abigail, Nabal's wife, um intervene she was used by God to step in and to prevent David from crossing the line and murdering innocent people. and we saw that Nabal actually died, God took care of that, and then David um, actually went off and married Abigail, made her his wife, but she was a gracious, godly, very wise woman, and God used her to help prevent David from doing something that David would ultimately regret. Today we see a much more restrained David. I I suspect that David may have learned something through that, and so we're going to see that today. The episode that we're going to look at today is also very similar to another one where David had opportunity to kill Saul and chose not to, and we're going to see that again today. So let's uh, look at the first few verses of chapter 26. It says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill? which is before Jeshimon so Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph having with him 3000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph Saul camped in the hill of Hekalah, which was before Jeshimon beside the road and David was staying in the wilderness when he saw that Saul came after him with or came after him in the wilderness David sent out spies and he knew that Saul was definitely coming David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped and David saw the place where Saul lay and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp and the people were camped around him so we set the stage here once again Saul is trying to track down David he's trying to kill David this is something like the 15th attempt that we see by Saul to kill David so he's just unrelenting and then something happens here. David gets an opportunity to sort of put an end to all of that. We see these Ziphites here. They had done this once before, if you remember. The Ziphites had come to Saul and said, "Hey, we're willing to give David up." Well, they're doing it again here, and so they come to David, or they come to Saul, and they basically tell Saul where David is, and they make it so that Saul can go out and prepare to uh, kill David once again. Move off into verse 6, it says this, Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but now please take the spear that is by his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did they wake. For they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So basically what we have is Saul's 3,000 men all camping, and Saul's in the middle of the camp where he should have been. He's asleep, he's got a spear stuck in the ground next to him, a jug of water, and soldiers around him that are supposed to be there to protect him. But you notice here that Abishai, the one that went down with David, sees this as a unique opportunity. He sees the Lord's divine hand in all this, they're all asleep because the Lord had come upon them and made them sleep. And Abishai sees this as an opportunity. And so he tells David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. And basically, I won't even have to take a second swing. Let's take this guy out. But David refuses. Now, remember, this is the same David that just short time earlier wanted to go and kill Nabal and all the men in his family simply because the guy had disrespected him. But we've learned something once before because David had an opportunity with Saul. Remember when Saul went to relieve himself in the cave and David snuck up behind the rock and cut off the bottom part of Saul's robe and then he felt shame because of doing that? He felt he had disrespected Saul? And so he felt remorse for that? Well, it shouldn't surprise us here that we find David in the same place where Once again, he has opportunity, but David refrains. And he actually gives two reasons why he refrains from killing Saul here. Notice the first one there. Saul was still the Lord's anointed. So in spite of what Saul had done, in spite of the fact that this is now the 15th time that Saul has come out against David, David still looks at Saul as the Lord's anointed. It's a term that he uses four times in this passage. David had recognized that even though Saul was the wicked man that he was, he was still in the position that God had placed him in. He was still the king, still the Lord's anointed. And so David says in verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? So the first reason David gives for not doing this is, for him to reach out and to kill Saul at this point would have been sin. Now, had Saul come against him in battle here, and he was killed in battle, it might not have been the same thing. David had a right to defend himself. But in this case, um, Saul's sitting there in the camp, sleeping. David has an opportunity to go down and take his life. But he says, I I can't do that and be without guilt, because God put him in that position. I think in some respects, David probably saw this as a test of the Lord. You know, it's funny, because I was thinking about this the other day, that... When God really wants to destroy an army, he sends the army against itself. (laughs) And the Israelites get to sit back and kind of watch. If God really wanted Saul dead at this point, God could have certainly done that. I wonder if this was a test for David. How might David respond when given the opportunity to take matters into his own hands? He already tried to do that with Nabal. And God had to send somebody to speak some sense to him. And so this is likely a test for David where this man Abishai was doing what he should have done. He was there to protect David. He was his right-hand man. And he was saying, from a military standpoint, we ought to do this. God has done this. David saw it differently. It was a test. And so he says, I I can't do this because it it would be sin. I would be filled with guilt for taking out the Lord's anointed. Now the second reason David gives, gives us some clarification on that. David was certain. He uses the word surely. But he was certain that the Lord would deal with Saul on His own terms, and that He did not have to take matters into His own hands. I, I love this passage here because um, I wonder what, how David might have said this—the inflection in his voice or the tone in his voice. Did he have confidence when he said it? Was there, was he a little more, more quiet? But look at what he actually says in verse ten: "As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him." Or his day will come and he'll just die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. So he basically gives the Lord three options here, if you will. Well, you know, we don't have to worry about this Abishai because the Lord's going to strike him anyway. The Lord will take him down. And if he doesn't do that, well, then maybe he'll just die and we're all good. Or, you know, he could go down to battle and die in battle. I suspect that David probably would have been fine with any one of those options. I don't think he would have objected had the Lord done any one of those things. The only thing we know is that David was confident that the Lord would deal with it because he says, surely the Lord will strike him, or he'll just die, or he'll go down in battle. And so David's two reasons for not wanting to reach out and strike Saul himself was because he's the Lord's anointed and that would make me guilty to take him out. But secondly, the Lord is going to deal with this. I wonder if David took to heart Abigail's words here. I want you to flip back to chapter 25. Remember, when she called out David to not avenge himself on Nabal, she said this, starting in chapter 25, verse 26. Now let... This gift which your maidservant... I'm sorry, verse 26. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood, meaning preventing you from killing Nabal, and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be just as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in all your days. Should anyone rise up and pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. In other words, David, what you did to Goliath, the Lord will do to your enemies. And so she warns him in this passage. She says, look, don't take it upon yourself. Let the Lord fight your battles, David, because he will do it. You focus on fighting the Lord's battles instead of your own, and the Lord will take care of the rest. And so David, as he's looking at Saul here, says, I'm not going to fight my own battle against Saul. I will let the Lord fight the battle for me. So maybe he learned something from Abigail there so instead of killing Saul David does something else look at verses 11 and 12 back in chapter 26 the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed then he says in verse 12 so David took the spear and the jug of water that was beside Saul's head and they went away so David and Abishai literally sneak into this camp now remember this is 3,000 men all circled around Saul. Saul's in the center, so you can almost see David. Kind of like um, you know, it makes me it makes me kind of think of the old um, Scooby Doo episodes and all that. You know, when they would always sneak. To, well, they're kind of walking through and they're sneaking through and they're paying attention not to step on this soldier's head or kick over this soldier's stuff and they sneak all the way into the center. And they're, what an opportunity! And literally, David wouldn't have had to pull out his own weapon. They've got the spear right there. All it would take is to pick it up and to drive it through Saul. But instead, goes all the way in, simply takes the spear, and then takes a jug of water. Now, I've got a suspicion why he might have taken the spear. Because the spear is the weapon. That's going to speak a message to Saul when he wakes up. That his weapon is gone. Why he took the water, I'm not really sure. It might just serve as, as evidence that he was there. But the spear would have been enough, so it's not real clear why he takes the water, but pretty clearly David is taking the evidence that he needs because he's going to confront Saul here in a little bit. And so it's the evidence that David is going to need to say, look, I I could have done this, but but I didn't. So instead of killing him, he goes and he takes the jug and the spear, and then he finally retreats. I think we can learn something from David here, and it's this. His exemplary patience and self-restraint is a demonstration of his deep and abiding faith in the Lord. I think that's the bottom line here. David was willing to not kill his enemy here because of his faith in the Lord. His conviction that the Lord would take care of it. Again, Saul had made 15 attempts on David's life. That speaks to David's patience. How many of us would... Okay, you know, the first time, we trust the Lord. second time, we trust the Lord. The third time, we trust the Lord. The fourth time, maybe we trust the Lord. (laughs) Lord, this is the 15th time this dude is, just let me take care of it, okay? Just give me the permission, Lord, to wipe him out. This, I think, gives us an example of David's exemplary patience and his self-restraint. But as we saw from the last chapter, David naturally just didn't have self-restraint. Somebody disses him, and what does he want to do? Wipe the guy out. But because of his faith in the Lord, he has patience and self-restraint. So when we think about that, I think that's something we can actually learn from him. I find something else in this, too. I find it remarkable that Abishai and all of the men walk away. Think about that. These men, David's men—400 or uh, there were 600 men that were with him. At least 400 typically would go out with them, but there would have been anywhere from 400 to 600 men surrounding David that likely looked at David and said, "Dude, are you nuts? This, our lives are just as much in danger as your life. Kill him. You're our commander. Take. Are you are you crazy? What soldier does not kill his enemy? And yet these men, Abishai and the others, twice now." Follow David's leadership in this. It tells us not just the respect they had for David, but there must have been something that the Lord had done in their hearts as well. For them to be able to look at David and to say, we're going to trust David on this. Especially when David says, we can't do this because it would make us guilty before the Lord. And so I think as we look at David, we can learn from his exemplary patience and his self-restraint and know that we develop that based on our faith in Christ it's not something we have how many of you are kind of like me where you don't have a whole lot of patience okay you know where do we find that patience it can only come from one place and it's that relationship with Christ and that's what we see here in David but also think of the impact we can have on others as we reflect these things in Christ you know the best leaders aren't those with leadership skills as much as it is those who reflect Christ. Those who do the right thing. And that's exactly what we find in David. And I think that's why these men, who were, were they were in just as much danger as David. But they were willing to still leave their lives at risk from this man Saul, because they were willing to trust David and just to listen to his advice, that this is an offense against the Lord. The Lord will deal with it. The Lord will take care of it. So as much as Abishai wanted to stick Saul to the ground, he was willing to follow David's leadership in this. It says something about David, it also gives us an idea of the kind of people we should be. You know, it's interesting, that same principle is found by are found in Romans chapter twelve by Paul. I want you to look at this just briefly with me. We went through Romans not too long ago. In Romans chapter twelve Romans chapter 12, let's look at verse 14. It says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Sound like David? If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's, if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Does that sound like David? Yeah. And it's the same advice Paul gives us. I was talking with Dave Malin last week, and he mentioned uh, you know, um, how neat it's been to kind of see how the Old Testament and the New Testament together are just one giant message you know and you see themes like this that are repeated we see David live out exactly what Paul says in Romans to us so again we can learn something from David in this let's move on because it doesn't end there David actually confronts Saul look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 26 Then David crossed over to the other side and stood up on the top of the mountain at a distance, probably very wise, with a large area between them. David called to the people and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord, the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord." This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now, see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. So the first thing we see there is David calls out Abner. Abner was the dude that was supposed to care for Saul. In fact, he shouldn't have been asleep. He was because we know the Lord put him to sleep. But the reality of it is, his number one job was to protect the king. And he failed miserably, just like all the other soldiers. And so David calls him out. And what I love about this is, remember, this is David's enemy. And David goes beyond just saying, I won't kill him. But the very people that are supposed to protect him, David calls out and says, you're not doing your job. Your job is to protect the Lord's anointed. And you failed. And because of that, the penalty really ought to be death. Because of the gravity of that. And so David even goes beyond not killing him himself, but calls out the one that should have protected him, another enemy of David's. And he basically says, you failed miserably. This is not just your Lord, it's the Lord's anointed, which is why David saw it as a capital offense. So he calls out Abner. But then he actually calls out Saul as well. Look at verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord the King. He also said, Why then is my Lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my Lord the King listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it's men, cursed are they before the Lord. For they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So what is David doing here? Well, he actually calls out Saul, but you notice how he starts? David still referred to him as my lord the king. That's a term of endearment. It's a term of respect. You know, I think... You all have seen what has been going on with our politics in the last few election cycles. It's getting more I want to call it, rancorous, if you want to call it that. I mean, the the infighting, the name calling, and you know, we have a president now. Whether you agree or disagree with him, involves you know name calling, and then you get the it's just uh, all civility is gone, you know. And yet, David, as he looks at this man who has been Pursuing him still, uses a term of respect as a, when he addresses him, my lord, the king. He begins by asking a rhetorical question, "Why are you pursuing me?" says literally, "Why then is my lord pursuing his servant?" So David refers to himself as a servant of this man as well. For what have I done? What evils in my hand? So David proposes two scenarios when he asks that question. One is, the Lord's stirred you up against me. In other words, I must have done something that offended the Lord. Now, I'm pretty sure that David realized that he hadn't done anything. But it's interesting he starts with that question. Maybe the Lord stirred you up against me. And if that's the case, then let the Lord deal with it. He says, let the Lord accept an offering from me. I find that interesting because, again, I'm pretty sure David knew that he hadn't done anything. But yet he's willing to entertain the idea that maybe I still have some type of offense against Saul. And maybe the Lord is trying to bring that to my attention. Maybe the reason I've been on the run for how many years, or maybe the reason my life has been in danger is because I somehow have offended the Lord, and the Lord has stirred up Saul to get my attention. So that's the first scenario. The second scenario he proposes is, maybe it's not the Lord, maybe it's some other wicked men. And I think he's being gracious to Saul here, because he could have said, maybe you've just got something up your saddle. But instead, he's gracious. Maybe some other men, he doesn't even want to attribute to Saul, Saul's own wicked behavior. Maybe some men have stirred you up, Saul. And if that's the case, then they should be cursed before the Lord. In other words, let the Lord deal with it again there. So David basically says, the Lord will either deal with me if he stirred you up against me, or the Lord deal with them because he stirred them up. But I love also what I find here with David. Why is David, what's what's at the bottom line? Is he afraid of his own life? Is he simply upset because he's miserable? Not getting? hey, this is the best military commander Saul had at one point. And, dude, I'm out of a job now. I'm running around scavenging for food. I'm constantly on the run. You know, why don't you knock it off, Saul? I'm miserable out here. But instead, look at what he does. He says, I have been driven out. That's a reference to being forced out of the promised land. He says, I've been separated from the inheritance of the Lord. That's a reference to the fact that they were the promises given to Israel are tied up in the land. And that was important to them. He says that effectively these men who have stirred you up against me have driven me out and are now forcing me to worship other gods. Now we might not really grasp that very much as Christians because we know that we can worship the Lord anywhere at any time in any way, in any place, right because the Holy Spirit who indwells us Old testament saints didn 't have that doesn 't mean they they couldn 't worship God outside, but remember so much of their worship was focused on the land and the promises God had given, and the religious rites and sacrifices and tabernacle. So... When they went to worship, they wanted to go to the tabernacle. When they wanted to present their offerings, there was a way to do it. They went to the tabernacle. They went to the priests. So the religious aspects were extremely important to their faith. And to be driven away from that meant you were now separated from God. And so David is saying, look, Saul, well, you don't understand. I have been driven away from the Lord. I am outside of his presence. I won't receive my inheritance. I'm being forced to worship I can't even worship him I'm being worshiped. I'm being forced now to worship the Canaanite gods that was David's concern it wasn't his own life it was all about what you're doing to me puts me at odds with my God not because of his own sin but because he had been driven away about the only thing I think I could probably relate it to might be when we have a discipline issue in the church, you turn to something like Matthew chapter 18 when you have a brother or sister who sins and, and you go to them and, and they just refuse to accept the counsel that you bring to them and so you take some witnesses with you just so they can sit and say hey why and so you lay out your case about how this brother or sister has sinned and these other godly individuals that came with you listen and they go wow yeah you're right this brother or sister is in sin and that brother or sister still rejects their counsel so then you know it says, well take them to the leadership of the church you know take them to the elders the wise ones you know and when they reject their counsel too what do you do and Paul says you kick them out <clears throat> you separate them from the body which means to sort of remove them from fellowship and the whole point there is that they might feel this absence and that may drive them back to repentance we kind of see that with we're going to get into 2nd Corinthians and we see that there's an individual Paul references there we're not sure if it's the same guy that was in 1st Corinthians or not that had had an affair with his, his dad's wife but Paul basically says you know you've disciplined him he's repented now it's time to love him back into the fellowship because the discipline was enough, he's repented. So wrap your arms around him. That's what it's designed to do. But in this particular case, David, that's not what's going on. David's being driven away. In fact, in verse 20, he says, ultimately, I'm being driven away from the presence of my Lord. That's what broke David's heart about this. Because he was now on the run, we know, in fact, after after this, David flees to the Philistines. He leaves Israel and goes to the Philistines. Sensing he's been driven away from the presence of the Lord. I think we can learn a few things from David here as well. Again, I'm sure that David realized he hadn't sinned, yet when confronting Saul one last time, he was willing to concede that he might have, he could have possibly, maybe just the smallest part, he might have somehow done something that the Lord was not happy with. He was willing to entertain that. I wonder how many of us are willing to do the same thing. Our natural tendency when we're accused of wrong is to Defend ourselves, isn't it? Some of us maybe more than others. We get a little self-righteous. How many of us really stop and go, "Wow, you know, maybe, maybe I'm partly to blame here." I read this book a number of years ago called "When Sinners Say I Do," and one of the things I loved about the book is it starts off. It's a guy writing basically about marriage relationships, and he says, "Look, you got a problem with your spouse? Maybe the problem's you." And the whole book is pretty much about that. You can't change your spouse. Maybe they're sinning. Maybe it's all them. But the reality of it is, you can't fix that. So maybe you just look at how you respond. Sound biblical? And so, what David does here, and I think it's something we can learn from this, is that when he's looking at the situation with Saul and being pursued and running around, he never stopped at least asking the question... Have I done something that might have offended the Lord here? Maybe what I'm facing here is the Lord's chastisement. Even though in his own mind, he probably was thinking, I can't think of a single thing. But he didn't then puff up his chest and go, Okay, but since I can't think of anything, it's certainly not me. He was at least willing to say, You know what? If, there is, if, if the Lord has stirred you up against me, Saul, I'm willing to make the sacrifice. I'm willing to, to do whatever the Lord requires for me to deal with my sin. So the question becomes, how quickly are we willing to do that ourselves? Maybe we're completely innocent. But even so, do we stop and at least think? Maybe maybe there is something. Um, I'll be real frank. For me, that's not a natural thing. So when I do it, it's only because I've tried to program myself to do it. You know, um, But I'm sure if, if you would ask Amy some questions about Um, me, and she were to be completely frank or honest with you, would probably tell you that that's not my natural tendency. I'm a justifier, you know? Um, But that doesn't mean that I don't try. In fact, I've shared an example over these recent months with some difficulty I've struggled with 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 my boss. And what's really interesting about this is, and and I shared this with Amy some of the accusations that he had made against me, um, I, I believe, were completely false. And I literally spent days and days praying and thinking through that and saying, Lord, I'm struggling here. I'm getting defensive. I, I want to defend myself. I vented. I, you know, I called my good buddy Dustin and just vented. Um, but I began to pray earnestly and just say, God, you know what? If there's something I'm doing here. And this is just open my eyes. And I told anyone, I said, I'm getting really frustrated. I'm not seeing anything. And I almost felt bad because after, it was about the time I'd been studying through this passage. And I almost started to feel bad, like maybe I'm just not looking enough or maybe the Lord's just not opening my eyes because I must have done something. Um, and I got frustrated because I couldn't find anything. And I almost felt arrogant to say, you know what, I don't think I have any culpability here. I really don't think I did anything to deserve some of these accusations. And I almost began to feel guilty because I'm reading this and I'm going, well, David didn't give up thinking that way. Now, whether I did or didn't, God never opened my eyes to that necessarily, but it did allow me to start making some changes in the way that I addressed Scott and some things that I did. So it was all a good thing, you know? Um, So the first thing I think we can learn from David is, is that he was willing to at least entertain. Maybe I'm not as innocent as I think. The second thing I think is we can see David's desperation and his passion to remain in the presence of the Lord. Certainly... When we look at a psalm like, if I want you to turn there, Psalm fifty-one, we get a good picture of how important it was for David to—I'll just say—remain in the presence of the Lord. You, you, you're all familiar probably with the psalm and why it was written. At, likely was something that David penned after his sin with Bathsheba that's what your little prescript will say there but David says be gracious to me O God according to your loving kindness according to the greatness of your compassion blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions my sin is ever before me against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge behold I was brought forth in iniquity and my sin my mother conceived me behold you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part will make known your wisdom purify me with his and you read through that david is just pleading with god ultimately not to remove him from his presence that was critical for david and i think you know as he's looking at this his primary concern is saul do you not realize what you're doing to me and it was critical for David to be able to remain there and so I wonder sometimes if we have that same passion i i I'd I, be real frank and you know, I talk, I've been talking with joy this morning about how sometimes you know our Americanized Christianity kind of blinds us a little bit you know and um I just wonder how passionate we are maybe to remain close to the Lord maybe we wouldn't sin as often or sin as much if we were we realized what that does to our relationship with christ and the fact that it, it sort of separates us and and um kind of steps us outside his presence in some respects and that was something that drove david um likely why he didn't kill saul he realized man it makes me guilty and I, i'm separated from the lord then and it was something that david was passionate about so what happens after that we'll go ahead and we'll wrap up with the next few verses and stuff So Saul finally offers a confession, and I say, once again, because we've seen him do this before, but look at verses 21 through 24. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. David replied, Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and faithfulness, for the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. So what happens here? Well, it appears that Saul confesses. I mean, it looks pretty... Pretty legit, he admits his sin. Um, He offers to let David return. Uh, He promises not to harm David again. He admits that he's been a fool, that he's gone astray of God's commands. The Hebrew word that he uses there actually refers to um, wandering or straying from God's commands. And so what Saul is saying here is, I've wandered away from the Lord's commands. He admits he's violated the law. But it's not really clear whether Saul's confession was sincere here or not. I'm sure he felt it. But you know, David wasn't willing to trust Saul because Saul had done this to him before. Confessed and then just turned around and started chasing him again. In chapter 24 he confesses, but then he continues to attempt to kill David. So his confession in chapter 24 was insincere. Notice here too that David um, actually flees to Gath a little bit later. Chapter 27, verse 4 says that it was only after David fled to the Philistines that he stopped pursuing David, implying that up until that point he was still interested in killing David. Notice, too, that David, when he told, did he tell Saul, well, here I'll bring his spear to you, Saul. No, he said, you send somebody else to come get the spear. David was unwilling to trust Saul at this point, with good reason. Because we find out that a little bit later Saul is still trying to pursue David and kill him. And David has to flee to the Philistines in order to prevent that. So, Saul's confession may have been emotional and sincere from that standpoint. I'm sure he felt sorry. I'm sure he felt some remorse and some shame here. But it wasn't enough to lead him to repentance. So it was an empty confession. Makes us wonder sometimes about ourselves. How many empty confessions do we offer? Sure, we feel it. I mean it. But if nothing changes, was it really all that genuine? What ultimately we're looking for is not confession, but repentance. Is that not true? And that's the thing that Saul failed 15 times. Some of which he confessed to but only to return like a dog to its own vomit. So he might have confessed, but he never repented. Notice how David actually ends on a promise and a prayer, verses 23 and 24. The promise is this, the Lord would repay David's righteousness and his faithfulness. David was convinced of that. He says, The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and for his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. What David believed here is that the Lord would reward his righteousness. That's a promise from the Lord. And it's true for David and it's true for us. But he also ends on a prayer. Now, behold, verse 24: As your life was highly valued in my or in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued. Now, catch this: in your sight? No, he says, in the Lord's sight. And may He deliver me from all distress. David was more interested in the Lord's impression and opinion of him than he was Saul's. And so, David's prayer was: May the Lord see that, and may the Lord treat my life with value because I treated your life with value. The last thing that actually takes place here, and that's I think where we can find our third and final lesson, is that our confidence that the Lord will reward us is also anchored in our obedience. Notice that David's um, trust or his confidence that the Lord would reward him was anchored in his righteousness, his obedience. You know, far too many feel confident in the lord when they're not living for the lord we talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the difference between David's perspective on God and Saul's, when Saul was all boastful and proud because David had gone down to Kalia and had rescued the people there, and there was only one way into the city, and Saul went, Aha! The Lord has given them to me! And he had every reason to believe that the Lord was not on his side, but he was absolutely convinced that the Lord was on his side. The Lord had told Saul, I'm not on your side! But Saul still walked around saying, The Lord's on my side. The Lord's on my side. He's given me David. David's confidence that the Lord would reward him was based purely in the fact that he was obedient to the Lord. It's the same thing for us. And too many people walk around just proud because they're wearing the label Christian, but they're not living obediently. They they should not have confidence. But we do, because we go to church, or we do this, we wear the label, you know. And so one thing we can learn from David here is that his confidence in the Lord, that the Lord would reward him, was anchored in his obedience. Isn't that what the Old Testament tells us time and time again? The Lord says, I don't care about your sacrifices. What do I want? Loyalty. Obedience. We can be confident too. The second thing here is that we can be just like David, our confidence that the Lord will deliver us from our distress when we value the things that he values. Remember, David says his prayer was that the Lord would deliver him from his distress because of the way that he had valued Saul in Saul's life. So David valued the things that the Lord valued and because of that the Lord would deliver him from his distress. The same thing holds true for us. When we value the things the Lord does and we we live in a way that recognizes and reflects that, then we have the promise that the Lord will take care of us in our distress. It's pretty simple. I'll read the last verse just as our closing. Verse 25, And Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. I find it interesting that even Saul, in in the place that he was at, still in some respects recognized the truth. We saw him the last time this happened. He said, oh, David, you're going to become king. That's pretty clear. But then he didn't live like it. You know, he just still tried to hold on tightly. And so we find here that Saul, even at this point here, still recognizes that the Lord is going to use David, which just kind of reminds me that even sometimes um, the Lord will speak through the mouthpiece of somebody like Saul to speak his truth.